The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of Shackle, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host, Ethan Gilson, and today I am joined by Senior Project Manager of Chicago Flyhouse, Mark Wittaveen. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing great. Thanks, Ethan. Excellent. So uh, I'll, I'll warn the listeners, Mark and I have never met before. This is completely cold for both of us, so this should be interesting. Um, like everyone, I asked the first question, which is, who are you, Mark? Well, my name is Mark Wittivine. Um I grew up mostly on the East Coast, sort of all up and down the East Coast. Uh, got into theater in middle school. Uh, kept going through it in high school because it got me out of class, which seemed like a good reason to go to theater for college to keep getting me out of school. Um, and then ended up focused a lot in scenery initially um, during university, but uh, pretty quickly after veered towards a lot more rigging, uh, where it was, I felt it was a little more challenging, a little more difficult, and I've always focused on a little more unusual rigging. So I started my company in January of 1998, um, and we started doing performer flying very quickly after founding, uh, and a lot of curtains and draperies and traditional rigging, and then went into automation pretty early on with uh, unusual motorized and automated things, uh, and a lot of repairs, inspections sort of all over the world. Yeah, I certainly think that Chicago Flyhouse has uh, a well-known name for a lot of the projects you've done, um, and, and in particular, your training programs. Um, what is it about training that you felt was important to uh, grow and market that service. And, and the reason I ask that question is, I know you do trainings, but you, you personally do trainings, but you also have a staff, which includes former guest Ed Leahy, who heads up the training for you. Um, for a lot of people, the training is something that they do personally, or they internalize to say, you've made a, a, a strong effort to bring on a team of people to do training. So do you want to talk about how you, you, how that market kind of presented itself to you? Sure. Um, it was really just a function of need. Um, one of my issues was at university, I never learned enough. I was constantly in a battle um, with my school about wanting to learn more and not being able to for various reasons. Um, and so when I got into the professional world and worked at a all-union scene shop here in Chicago for a couple of years, I still felt like there was this sort of void of knowledge. It was sort of hand-me-down knowledge. Um, and there were a couple of great trainers out there and there still are. But one of the things I noticed is it was very specific. It was sort of very uh, focused on I'm a rigger and you're not. And for me, I felt like all the stuff was nothing amazing. It was nothing spectacular. It was nothing magical. It was just facts, information. And I just wanted to teach as many people as possible how to understand the basics so they could protect themselves and consequently the people they work with. The more people that understand the rigging, um, and that's in my definition, that's pretty much anything that hangs in the air or moves in a theater, the more likely that accidents are going to decrease and people can remain safe. I mean, I've, I say many times in my training for aerial work, especially, I've given away hundreds 
of beaners because I find aerialist in, that I'm doing a training for have just terrible equipment. And I say, please, please throw that away and have this, this is mine, have this, have this. Uh, and it's just a way to try to make the whole industry safer. If I tried to do that just myself, uh, one, I, I, I would, it would be too much of the same thing for me, but it would also, I wouldn't be able to reach as many people. So right away early on, we tried to make training in our installations and in our renovations, um, in our inspections, part of it, just educate our clients. I mean, we don't want to keep the secret and be the experts and have nobody else know what's under the hood. We want kind of everyone to understand what's under the hood. The more people know, the, the safer it is. So by bringing in a lot of other people, another one of your guests that actually was with um, Ed on the thing, Eric Rouse, he worked for us a couple of years as a trainer too. Um, and it just allowed us to branch out to a larger swath of people by not being this isolated one man band situation. No, absolutely. And, and I think, uh, in that episode with Eric and Ed, we discussed quite a bit the aspect of getting training from multiple people helps you learn different things that you can go, um, oh, what's the term I want to do? Colorblind or, or sense blind to the same trainer if you're just continually going back to that source. So, um, yeah, and absolutely. And what you notice about a lot of our training, especially our paid training, because um, obviously, uh, you know, and you sort of alluded to it, when the uh, pandemic hit, we right away switched to a huge amount of free online training, which um, we had sort of veered a little bit away from most of our online training because we felt we couldn't get that personal connection that we needed to get a feedback loop to make sure people were learning versus just sitting in training. Um, but I think we've succeeded pretty well uh, with the online stuff. But it was really important for us that all these people were out of work and we wanted them to still have a chance to learn. So we just sort of bombarded over the, the last few months with free training. And then as an add-on to that, we started adding some premium classes where the content gets a little deeper, a little more interesting, and it, by consequence, takes up more of our resources. So a lot of the training we do that's premium will have two or three people doing the training. And it's for what you're talking about, with the more people you learn from, the better. So we get some wonderful dialogues going between Ed and myself or Ben or, or one of the other technicians. And you get this sort of back and forth with what you understand, what the other person understands, and you end up with this more cohesive solution at the end of what's right or wrong. And there's so many different opinions out there and so many different ways to do everything. It's great to, to have that as part of the training, not one concept, but you walk away with two concepts or three concepts. I, I think it just allows for a more dynamic growth and movement at, as a technician sort of grows in, in the industry on their own. One of the things that I think some people had, uh, brought up as they were taking free online training was, well, why are they charging all of a sudden? I think it's uh, important for people who take trainings to recognize that trainers spend a lot of time pulling all that information together. So you're not only talking about one person, but multiple people, multiple people who is a, uh, is a drain on the financial situation to say of a company. So trying to figure out how to find a balance between offering affordable training to people who are not working, but also making sure that you're going to be able to continue to offer that training and not go out of business is, is the trick. So I think that's an important aspect for people to think about is there, there needs to be a balance there. Um, but I know a lot of people who have taken training from you guys during the, the current pandemic and have found it very informative. And I think it's important for people to stay active and ready to go 
back to work whenever that is to have those skills and be able to capitalize on it. Yeah, and we've worked really hard too. So even our paid stuff, we I I, I believe it's still very affordable. And and the and the rea- the reality is it's it's essentially a lost leader. I mean, we we maybe if we're lucky break even on the paid ones. But we still are very careful to offer free ones every single week that we're doing paid ones. So there's always an option for the free if you don't want right. to pay. Um, and then there's other topics that maybe make sense to pay $25 for or something. Um, but we're still working that out. You know, when we're in a, a huge swath of industries, we're a very specialty company, but we're in a specialty company in a bunch of specialty industries, um, not just in theater. And you know, one of the industries that we're in, cruise ships, of course, went from full speed to completely zero overnight. Um, and we shifted a lot of our like training resources to do the free training. But this, this, like you said, allows us the $25 per person, you know, it, with a, one or two paid classes a week uh, allows us to at least cover those costs and keep everyone employed, which is, is really important at this time period. No, absolutely. So one of the questions I usually ask people is, what is your, you know, one of you, what is one of your favorite projects to work on? I want to tailor that very specifically because I know you guys have just finished a really significant project out in Las Vegas, which is the new NFL arena. Do you want to talk a little about that? Can you talk about that project? I'll ask that question first. Yeah. And if so, you want to talk a little about that process and what you guys did for them? Because these new mega arenas are really pushing the envelope in design, particularly when they want to do uh, transparent or no structure above the field, which creates technical challenges for wanting to hang stuff. Yeah. I mean, so sort of to go back to your initial question, I've worked on so many weird and unique jobs. There's, there's just an endless collection of stuff to talk about there. Um, and I love all of them for their wonderful things that resulted and their terrible pain that caused to get there. Uh, they're all great in that respect. Um, but the the uh, arena, the Allegiant um, Stadium for the new home of the Las Vegas Raiders um, was a great project. Uh, we started really getting a pretty big headway into arenas, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so. And the reason we got into them was not because we're rock and roll arena rigger guys. We're, that's really not our market. It's because we were able to find, and this is going to sound a little salesy, and so I apologize for how it might sound, but we were really focused on end user functionality. And what the arenas were getting from some of the traditional suppliers out there was uh, drapes that dealt with light control, but in a way that was extremely expensive to convert from you know, dra- no drapes to drapes or not very functional or very loud. So you couldn't use it during a performance or something like that. And we focus really heavily on the, that final experience, that facilities person being happy um, operating the system, both in its longevity and its functionality and its, its noise and speed and everything like that. So the arenas grabbed onto us pretty quickly and we started doing a lot of them around the country. The uh, Vegas one came to us through a bunch of you know general contractor and consultant and architect context, but it also came because we had just completed um, the Minnesota Vikings for the final four, um, the NCAA basketball, where that venue had a huge lighting issue. So the all one of the things that was driving a lot of these arena light control, which is basically what we do. Well, we do two things in arenas. We do acoustic absorption and we do lighting control, like a ambient light control. So in the case of this discussion for Raiders, it was all um, ambient light control that we were brought in for, not the acoustic um, control. 
and but they had just seen us complete the Vikings, which was an exceptionally challenging venue because they had a large piece of glass. I think it was, a, I want to say it was close to 270 feet tall by, I don't know, maybe roughly the same width. I just don't remember the numbers anymore, but huge overlooking the city uh, from their stadium. And we had to cover all that with drapery. It was 6.7 miles of drape we put in that place, plus all the clerestory uh, windows and then another angled and everything like that. So we did it all within a few months from, hey, we need this to, hey, it's done. And we did it in a way that was changeable. So it wasn't, it's, it's not uh, inexpensive to change over because it was a retrofit and they didn't want to spend that much money, but it's relatively affordable to change over so they can do different events. And that's what brought us over to the Raiders. We did that as a design build for, um, for Minnesota and Las Vegas had basically the same problem. They had an enormous window looking over the city of the strip basically, I think, and I'm gonna get these numbers all wrong. I think it's 85 feet tall by 250 feet wide or something, these openable doors. So we, uh, they brought us in on a, as a consulting basis, like, hey, can you help us solve these ambient light control issues and how much do we need to? And can you do the, analyze the lighting at different times of the night and day? And this all is driven, or not all, but a lot of this is driven by concerts, maybe obvious theater shows that may be obvious, ice shows and things like that. But the NCAA drove a lot of these requirements because they say that every team that plays in that final four has to play and practice under the exact same lighting conditions, which means any ambient light from any natural light has to be controlled because at 11 o'clock practice versus a four o'clock practice, you're going to have different lighting conditions. And of course, all these arenas over the last 10 years went from complete black boxes to gigantic windows everywhere. So they brought us in so that one of the reasons, one of the many reasons is so that they can, of course, be able to host this down the road because that's a huge revenue stream for all these um, stadiums and arenas. So the other thing that goes along, of course, with ambient light control, when you're putting up this much drapery and something you have to consider is all this glass is very reflective. So then you have to consider not only do I need to black out the light and how much do I black it out? Do I do it just as a, you know, 80% blackout and 90% blackout and so on, but also how do I then treat it so that this curtain can be double purpose and they, they double their functionality on their investment and have it do acoustical absorption. So the one at the Raiders, that whole wall to the city um, that they call the Lanai doors um, is what would be back of house during a concert for the most part in an arena show in there. So now we have a double layer and we built a double layer for both acoustic and uh, ambient light control. It's two separate curtains that are spaced apart uh, so that you get a really good light absorption and a really good acoustic absorption that all go travel together um, so that you have that double functionality. And it's something we developed Many years ago, this sort of dual curtain spaced out design and light control with acoustic control for the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, which is a 450 foot wide by 35 foot tall curtain that weighs about 8,000 pounds, where that whole glass is all overlooking Lake Michigan and has morning sun for the first few hours of the day, direct sun straight into the pool, which prevented them from doing shows because when you went to look at the dolphins all you saw was a glare off of the water so all these things were kind of driven and i'm i'm, I'm meandering now a little bit ethan but <laughs> all these things were driven by what does the customer really need to function and how do we do it in a way that makes sense so the shed aquarium it goes up in uh 20 seconds the 85 foot tall one by the way at the raiders goes up in 21 seconds from start to finish so that's something like a wow. i forget uh 
I think it was overall, we put about seven and a half miles of fabric in that place. Um, and I don't remember how many pounds, I think it was about an 8,000 or 9,000 pound curtain that went in uh, into that one, just that one alone. To move at 21 seconds is pretty phenomenal. Um, and it does it quietly, which is great. And this was a discussion we had with the owners and owner representatives and operators and everything over the past year, or I guess now it's year and a half, two years, um, was when do you need to use this? And then what do you expect out of it? That all the systems that had traditionally been installed from the other companies that have been doing this for 20 years in arenas, that curtain would take maybe four minutes, five minutes to deploy. And what we kept talking with them is, you know, you're going to want a dark and a quiet space when you do the concert. But afterwards, when everyone has done the concert, you're going to want to show that you're in Vegas. You're going to want to see Vegas behind you. So we specifically made that curtain, a curtain, not just a functional utility thing, but part, it can be part of the show. And that, that kind of thing had never been done before to that scale in an arena or a stadium is what they call it as opposed to an arena. But. Well, that's also, you mentioned the NCAA and their requirement that all the games be played in the same conditions. And we know with the NFL, that's not the case. That natural environment is something that they actually enjoy, especially here in the Northeast where you have Buffalo and New England and Chicago where it snows. So thinking about a potential Super Bowl location, during the game, you want that natural environment, but for that halftime show, you want absolute control. And I can speak from experience. I did a project where we had to take a rehearsal space for a dance company and turn it into a performance space. And their idea was to do that within half an hour to flip it. And all the drape had to come from the ceiling. We couldn't do tracks, couldn't store stuff in corners. It all had to be braille, meaning it stacked on top of itself and got lifted up to the ceiling. And they had one end of the space was, you know, 24 foot tall by 50 foot wide window. And there were windows along the sidewalls. So good, bad, or indifferent, we ended up doing a bunch of roll drops with vinyl material. And we got overlap, but middle of the day, noon, when sun's coming through that large window, it's really tough to block out all of the light. And you want to get it as perfect as possible. So... That was difficult on that scale. I can only imagine how difficult it is to do it on something that's, you know, exponentially larger. Um, and then to specialize on that, that's uh, kudos to you guys, because that is just can be a very frustrating environment to work in. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, it just goes back to what I said in the beginning. You know, the whole company is based on, is it hard? Does everyone else say no? Okay, we'll do it. You know, it's, um, it's just how we we're sort of all built around here. It's like, we're just dying for that harder thing to do. Now, maybe, maybe some of the technicians here would argue that they like an easy job every once in a while, but for the most part, that's what, I mean, that's certainly what keeps me up at night in a good and good and bad way. You know, it's what keeps me excited about doing what I do. I, you know, one of the unique things about the entertainment business and all the variations of industries we're in because of this is, is the challenge. It's not, it's never the same. It's always something different. And, even if it looks the same, you, you came across 12 challenges that nobody will see and you had to solve them. And I, I think that's just a very satisfying way to, to spend your time 50, 60 hours a week. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have expressed the fact that um, we in this entertainment business are problem solvers. That's what we like to do. And we do it on these type time constraints, not because there's a, you know, there is a financial obligation, but more so at 
X time, the audience expects to see a performance. So you have that finite amount of time and you got to solve those problems, whatever they are. And new challenges come up on each load in if you're touring or each installation project, there's a new challenge. I just did a project where there the drawings weren't complete and you do site visits and you look at stuff but the environment changes another trade does something and you get on site and you're like oh hey here's our plan and now we got to change it so figuring out that solution now i can tell you the part i don't like is when you're lifting a heavy object and you're going man i hope this plan works i really don't want to find out the hard way that this plan doesn't work and something comes out of the sky but um you know that's yeah. that's what we work hard towards to avoid. You know, it's interesting because um, uh, the sort of disposable nature of theater, you know, where you put something in and you take it out a month later and you throw it all away um, and you're doing so many over and over again new things uh, leads to some great innovation. And, and admittedly, we steal most of our innovation from industries that have much more money. Um, but that's that in itself is innovating, you know, to take something that exists when we, when we problem solve here, we talk a lot about stuff that's similar, um, not so that we can take ideas directly from something else, but that we can learn from what other people already learned. You know, like they designed, let's say the seatbelt in your car at this height and this spacing for some reason, you know, what, what did they know about that? Or a great example was we created a, um, for one of our hospital clients, we created a very customized uh, wireless joystick and we kept looking at how do we want it to hold and fit in, in your hand. And, and what we kept going back to was the Wii remote, right? So this Wii remote's been out now for what, 20 years? I don't know how old the Wii is, but it is such a tiny and so ergonomically functional remote and it works for little kids and it works for adults and it works for left-handers and right-handers. And so we kept going back to that, like what did they learn in that? Not so we can copy the design exactly, but so that we're not starting from scratch it's like let's build off of what they learned and so we did we one of the biggest things we learned from them when we went back besides the physical size so that lots of hands could hold on to it we we also learned the angle of actually from the your sort of center line of your hand grip to where your thumb would be on a joystick was really critical and we played with different versions of where it was further down and further back up and it just we just kept coming back to it's like wow these guys just they just figured it out you know they they just found such a good position. And then we built the rest of the joystick expanding in both directions from there, but didn't have to, to reinvent, reinvent that wheel. But we still got to innovate with, you know, e-stops located in a way so you can hold it with one hand and hit the e-stop against your chest or your thigh or your pocket or something on the wall um, so that you're fully down to a single-handed operation and stuff like that. It's interesting. I think a lot of people, when they get into a new management position, and they're going through their evaluation process of the systems that are in place for that position they're going into. Um, there's a natural tendency to want to create change to say, okay, how do we change this? What do we do? And I think a very critical step is to ask, why was this process done in this manner to start with so that you can understand what worked well and maybe what didn't work well and need some improvement. It's not just because, you know, that's the way we've always done it. Maybe the answer you get, but going deeper into that. So why is that the way you have always done it? Well, if we change this, 
there are all these other problems that create it. And, and we figured the problem we were dealing with was easier than those other problems. And you need to make that decision. So it's very natural to say, why? Ask why, understand what the process is before you just start making changes. Because when you do make changes, you want them to be effective and you don't want to reinvent that wheel. And, and that's kind of where institutional knowledge comes into play. Learn from those other people who have been there before. And I'm not saying you have to do exactly what they tell you, but understand the thought process. That's gonna save you that learning curve. And then you can be more effective in implementing your change. Absolutely. And, you know, so building off of other people's things, like you said, that you don't have to keep them, but you, you, you need to understand why we are where we are and then make improvements from there. And then the other thing I would say, you know, when you're in an idea session or trying to innovate, you cannot be precious about ideas. It's a mistake I see people make all the time. They come up with a solution for something and they just lock onto it. And really what you need to do is come up with five solutions for something and then just be brutally critical of those five solutions till you end up with one that's left over that really stands out or, or a version of all five that got molded into a six, you know? Um, and it, it's hard to do. It's, it's you, when you are innovating and you, you think of a great idea, it's hard sometimes to accept the fact that you're going to murder that little idea and, and, and go with a different one. <laughs> but, but when you do, it allows you to, to really innovate very quickly and, and develop new ideas very quickly. Yeah, it, I think we've all been in a situation where we were trying to solve a problem. You look at it, you you get tunnel vision, you spend hours going down this this path, and then you're like, oh, this isn't working, and then you stop. And sometimes it's, you know, the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid. And you go, wait, what if I just do that? Hey, look, I solved my problem. So again, as you said, not getting married or falling in love with a certain idea and saying this is the only way. So we're going to go into the weeds here. Okay. There's there's uh, a book called Spy Capitalism, iTech in the CIA. So it's I-T-E-K. Um, I know about this because iTech is the company my father worked with. iTech was started, it's kind of like the Microsoft in the 1950s going in the 60s. It was started by a gentleman who would look at other companies and their technology and would acquire those technologies to bring into his company. And scary enough, in the 1950s, he didn't have a real business plan. He didn't have a goal. His initial concept was uh, optical scanning of uh, cards, to say, that had holes punched in them, which was basically digital data, and the optic process of scanning those cards. And through that, he started looking at optics and started seeing a need for large format optics like spy cameras in airplanes and then satellites. So iTech did a lot of defense contracting. Uh, the, the first recovered images from space, the Corona program, was iTech. So this book is talking about how iTech grew and its relationship with the government and intelligence community and how it went from performance-based need, we need a satellite to take images from space. Great. Well, there's, there's a problem, which is a satellite spins as it orbits the planet. And, and I'm talking not that it spins around the planet, but it spins around its axis. So your camera is not always facing towards the ground. So you can solve that 
two ways. The first way that most people latched onto is you put a gyroscope into the satellite and that keeps the camera facing the Earth. The downside is, is the gyroscope reliable? How much heavier does it make the satellite? How much more expensive does it make the satellite? Versus what iTech's plan was, some guy sitting in a room said, why are you putting a gyroscope in? Just do timing so that every time the camera is facing the earth, it takes a picture. And as it moves, we just stitch these photos together. So they were able to design a satellite that cost less, was more reliable and worked versus the competition. The rest of the book goes into how the culture changed where these intelligence agencies would start being prescriptive in their requirements. You have to use a gyroscope. You have to use this focal length. You have to do this because their internal engineers and scientists started latching onto ideas. And the, the, the public sector, uh, or sorry, the private sector would say, but you could solve it doing this and it would cost less and, and do it. And they, nope, we're not doing that. We're doing this other idea. So it was an interesting read. It's kind of dry, but it is kind of interesting to look at that concept of latching onto that idea and getting so far down and being pot committed to it that you can't back off of it and saying, well, if we get a different set of eyes in here, do we see something that we're just missing? Do we get so focused that we missed it? So, yeah, um, well, it's, you know, it's really interesting because, yeah, I mean, right away I see a million parallels to our industry and what happens, you know, so I should put the disclaimer out there that uh, consultants play a very important role and there's the vast majority of consultants out there are phenomenal and, and we do really enjoy work working with them, but the specifications they have to develop can sometimes be very restrictive in order to guarantee their clients getting something. They're actually striking the possibility of innovation out of the system and they're sacrificing innovation for uh, a guarantee of something. So they don't guarantee they get something better, but they guarantee they get something good enough, right? At a dollar amount. At a dollar amount. And, but we see the same thing happening in standards writing, right? It's very easy to jump to the idea of we need a standard, therefore everyone has to do something, therefore it's safe, right? And for the most part, that's true. But even in standards, you see some of the standards written um, and they're so prescriptive, as you said, it has to be a gyroscope that what they've basically done is sucked out all these other potentials and they've written it into now a sort, a sort of rule that people go to where now a better solution either can't be applied or can only be applied with a great deal of effort and struggle to get it beyond that standard. And, and we see that all the time. I mean, we're dealing with standards from around the world and we get in these sort of debates um, across email, but this doesn't meet the standard. And we say, yes, it does because of these reasons. And yes, it meets this quality standards. So the goal is met, even if you didn't describe this exact solution. And it's unfortunate that, you know, everyone has to play the game of risk reward. So, the, the risk goes down through standards and specifications, uh, but the reward is also, uh, the potential rewards are a little lost too. You know what I mean? We're, we're sacrificing some of that potential innovation. Uh, luckily, you know, people are getting better at writing standards and leaving them open-ended. Like, what is the goal? The goal is to have, let's say, a five to one safety factor, not that the goal is the wire rope has to be one eighth inch in diameter, right? Which I remember in the early days, I, I only got involved, I don't have the sort of, um, uh, what do you call it? The, 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 I don't have the patience <laughs> to, for the for the standards process. Um, I, I love it. I think it's fascinating. And the people that do, I'm very uh, admir 
admire a lot for their ability to be so focused on that stuff. Um, but I remember being early on in some of the, in the flying standards were being worked on with them. Um, and I was involved a little bit way back and I had to back out of it because they were trying to basically put standards that were written to qualify or sort of specify essentially the companies and the products and solutions that currently existed rather than writing a standard that guaranteed a standard for a safety or a goal of safety that was going to be met. And it's difficult not to fall in that trap. I mean, how do you ensure something safe? You can't just say it has to be safe and end your standard, right? You have to clarify some things, but it's surprising how often that clarity will, will, will take away that innovation. I think that brings up a very important part to put on my ESTA technical standards program hat for a second, which is when you look at the makeup of the task groups and the working groups, whether it's rigging or lighting fixtures, control protocols, there are a lot of manufacturers because obviously they have a vested interest in being involved in creating the standards. What we see underrepresented are users. And we are always looking for users to be members of the working groups or the task groups, even as an observer, even if you're not interested in writing the standards and being involved in that process, but you want to be more involved in giving feedback to what those task groups are writing. That's how you get a better standard where you say, hey, you're requiring this, but what if I want to do this, this and this? And so you brought up performer flying. I don't, that's the area of my rigging knowledge that is, is the smallest. I do some silk stuff, but I don't do, you know, let's use the term Peter Pan-esque flying effects. But reading through it, you started seeing some aerial performers, silk performers, circus type performance who had concerns based on bearing surface of the harness. Now, that was a discussion of, is a wrist strap a harness for a performer? And if it is, it has to meet certain requirements. Well, that kind of changes the cost aspect and a lot of different things for that performer versus, you know, what we intended with the document, which was Peter Pan flying or someone doing flips in the air in a belt type harness. So without that feedback of users, you're not getting that representation, which kind of goes back to what you were saying. I think it's important for listeners to, to recognize that when a new building or a renovation is happening and a contract is signed, whether there's a consultant or not, a lot of the times the people who win the project are bound by the contract on what they have to do. And so I can tell you when I worked for the big lighting company, I'd get very frustrated because there would be not a well thought out design aspect for a project. And you're like, I know the user is never going to do this or is always going to do that. If we just made this one change, they would be happier and it would cost no different. Nope, can't do it. It's in the contract. It has to be this. So yep. going back to what you're saying is it's important to have a relationship with the consultants and the users and figuring out the correct communication to say, we know their user is going to want this. The consultant's doing this. How do we get the how do we get them both what they want? Yeah, it's um, you know, I run into this all the time and it's so, so frustrating. I'm 
uh, I believe uh, that the company as a whole, but I especially am so user focused, like is the end user going to be happy? Um, because otherwise, why are we doing this, right? We're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for this person that will use it. And it's missed a lot. And people are shocked. Like we have a class where we talk about new construction processes and stuff. Uh, ben uh, Cohen and I do, and Ed usually moderates between us. Um, and we talk a lot about how, unfortunately, in this process, when you get so many giant entities involved, you know, you have an owner, an owner's rep, a general contractor, maybe a construction manager, an architect, a consultant, or 10 consultants, the end user or even owner sometimes just kind of through, for whatever reason, I don't think it's ever malicious, but often just ends up on the sideline, right? They're just a bystander to this process that's happening. And it's frustrating to know that we've put out, um, we have, I can think of two right now that we've dealt with this, where we put out automation controls very exactly like the specification and the consultants required and exactly as they wanted and programmed them exactly as they had to be for this very specific controlled environment they wanted. And they didn't want to give the owners or the operators, the end users, any other control. Well, then it comes to those people are all gone and now the owners and operators are using the venue and they say, hey, we want this control. And now they have to make a decision. Do they want to spend more money to get what they always wanted from the get-go, but we're basically told they can't have or we're sort of designed around? And it, it's painful. It's painful because we had to meet that contract. Like you said, we had to follow those rules and maybe we can build some extra things in there that we can implement for them day two, so to speak. But sometimes we can't, you know, you can't just put an encoder on every one of the 60 axes in the room for free, right? You just can't. So if you're competing in a competitive bid, which is the vast majority of our work, you unfortunately have to follow the contract because your competitor is not going to add that $200 freebie to every axis. So if you want the work, if you want to have those contracts and keep your people employed, you kind of have to follow those rules. And the whole time, like you said, in the back of your mind, you kind of know that the user's not necessarily going to be ha happy as they could be. And, and it's it's probably one of, the, one of the more challenging things I go through, just knowing that I did exactly what, because my client effectively is the consultant, is the architect, is the GC, until it's handed over to the owner, you know, the, right. the, you know and, and so you have these mixed emotions of who, who you're doing this for, <laughs> and you're, you're stuck. You're stuck in a paperwork battle and a, and a legal battle of, of, of doing what's necessary to get the job done contractually. And I think that goes to the, we all come from that performance, that live event side, many of us, where we understand what the user is going to do with the space. You know, in a, in a oversimplified process, when a new building is being built, let's talk about electricians. They don't sit there and say, okay, this outlet is three feet up from the floor and it's 10 feet from this corner and the panel is here. They literally go through and they count how many outlets there are. There's a thousand outlets in this building. It is $50 an outlet or a hundred, whatever the number is. How many of XYZs are there? How many lighting fixtures? And they have a price per fixture. And that's how they come up with their, their bid number. And they get very aggressive with that. And their sole purpose is to win the bid. And once they win the bid, they know that every single change, no matter how small it is, you want that outlet to move over six inches, that's a change order. And you get billed for that. And that's where they make their money is in change orders. And it's a very different thought process than how we 
in the entertainment business approach it because I think we come from that user standpoint so often, which is, no, let's give the user what they want. What does it cost moving this atlas over six inches? We haven't run the wire. Let's just move it. What's the big deal? But it gets, it's as you said, complicated by the contract process. So you go through this of how do we win these projects and how do we give the client what they want? And there's a lot of, here's my card. You know, as soon as you own the space, you know who installed it. Give me a call um, so that you can try to get the client what they're looking for or the end user. Because uh, like you said, the client often isn't the end user for you. It's some, you know, other contractor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes we're subbed under the electrical contractor, sometimes under the GC, sometimes under a owner's representative entity, you know. It's it's an interesting um, game of politics to play with everybody. My favorite situations, and we've we've had the good fortune uh, of working all over the place, and with some really phenomenal contractors, uh, consultants, architects, everybody in the process. But then there's plenty of ones that have just been terrible and awful and painful from day one to, to the end. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I mean, I think for the most part, most most people are really good and are really trying to achieve it, and. Uh, the difference of a construction site for the owner and the end user um, that is a good GC, a good contractor collection that goes with and the ones that are bad is on the bad sites. The whole venue just isn't as good when it's done. You know, there's something about it. I used to say with our cruise ship clients that I could walk the gangplank of a ship and know whether it was going to be a good ship or bad ship to be on because <laughs> now we're getting a little uh, wishy-washy, but the, the climate was determined by the management. And if the management believed in their people and believed in the, the knowledge of each person and went all the way through to the technician, trusting the technician that it was unsafe to do the show that night because of waves, the whole ship was more positive. The, the equipment was in better condition, everything. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I would walk on these gangplanks and I could just feel the energy from the security guards. And it was like, oh, this is going to be a bad one. And you get on the ship and it's like, oh, there's 30 axes that don't work and everyone's mad at each other and they're missing three technicians and they're short staffed. You know, it's like, it was just so interesting. Um, so when you get a good team, it's it's really phenomenal. And we've had the good fortune, especially when we work sort of pseudo directly for owners, which we do a lot because we do a lot from the very beginning, um, sort of design build kind of stuff. And uh, it's when we get those, it's an incredibly rewarding experience. And um, Vegas was one of those. Same with Minnesota Vikings. You know, we got to really start at the beginning um, and and go to the end with the clients or client representatives or various people in the thing. And it's it's an incredible process. You at least feel like you've done something worthwhile at the end. Absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit, less about the the gear and the, the project side, more about yourself. Who have some of your mentors been? You had mentioned that, you know, early on in high school, you wanted to avoid going to class. You got involved in theater. As you went through the process of, of your journey, who are some of the mentors that you had who helped you develop your desire to go into specifically rigging? Um, that's difficult to say. Uh, I learned from everybody. I worked with every single person, whether they taught me nothing, I still learned from them. You know, there, there's something to be gained from everybody's experience and knowledge and how they deal with things. Um, some of those things are directly related and some of you kind of learn to do the opposite. Um, but like I said, at my university, I felt like I couldn't learn enough. I was permitted to do some things out of the box, um, but it was always slightly controlled, which 
Um, I always felt like there's only one opportunity you have to continually fail in life safely, and that's at school. And if you can't fail there, then you know you're never going to get that opportunity again. And that was a, a motto that my school didn't prescribe to. Um, but I was fortunate enough to work on some big operas while I was still in school, in fact, and hired some commercial scene shops to build those operas, a couple different ones. And I learned right away, like the difference between sort of the theoretical regional um, uh, and, you know, small theater I did uh, back home um, into the sort of professional side of it and how they dealt with me as the sort of owner's rep, for lack of a better term, the person that was essentially hiring them. And I was impressed that the, I don't know, just the professionalism and the goals to sort of satisfy what the person's paying, you know, not just the show, but also the other people in the process and keep them satisfied. So I got hired straight out of uh, school uh, to be, you know, a project manager at one of the um, scene shops. And in that process, I, I got named Rich Bynum. It used to be Hawkeye Scenic, um, uh, a great guy, super, super uh, wonderful individual. Um, he allowed me to sort of be a little more out there. You know, he didn't restrict me. I, I needed to get the stuff done. But when a designer came to us, I just said, yeah, I can figure that out. And that was it. That was sort of the end of the discussion. So he taught me a lot, but more than anything, he just allowed me to solve the problems. And I didn't always succeed. And for him, that was pretty risky considering he was a professional shop. Um, he didn't let me collapse and fail, but he allowed me to go through the process um, which was really relevant. Um, and it was an uphill battle. I mean, even if you think in the shops, the first thing that every new carpenter that came in the shop asked the shop foreman was what's his last name, meaning me, what's my last name. And I would have to like, you don't know my dad, trust me, you know, but that was the mentality, um, in the union was like, who is this guy? How did he get here in this position of authority? You know, who's his dad? Um, and it took a long time to get through that and and build past that, but I learned a lot. I mean, I've, I've had some run-ins, and this is across the country, some run-ins with local tradespeople, um, especially in my younger days, and I see some of my younger PMs have to go through this, where you must not know what you're doing because you're younger than me, that mentality. Um, but in that process, that painful process of it, if you keep yourself pretty humble, you you really learn a lot. You learn how to communicate your information. You learn how to gain the respect of people. So all those people sort of taught me along the way. I, I realize that's not really the answer you're probably looking for, but it was like, that's how I learned the most is through those failures, through those mistakes, through those people that were combative to me um, and learned how to get through that process. Here's, here's an original thought. I would tell people, I went to Emerson College, Emerson students when they graduate, are known to have a bit of a reputation of having ego, thinking they're a big fish in a little pond. And you go through this several times. You graduate high school, you go to college. Again, you are a big fish, little pond. You go to college, you do that for however many years. You climb the ladder. And that's the reference that I wanted to bring up, which is the reality is it's not what rung on the ladder you are at now. It is your ability to continue to climb the ladder that will set you apart from other people. So if you change jobs, you're at the bottom of the rung, but it's up to you and your knowledge and your ability to climb that ladder versus saying, no, I was on this rung before and I deserve to be there and you should respect that. Nope, start at the bottom and climb the ladder again. If you do your job well, you're going to climb that ladder faster than the next person who maybe just says, oh, well, I got 
knocked down a couple of rungs and I just I'm giving up and I'm not going to work hard and I'm upset about it. It's that attitude. And we talk about this a lot in the podcast. It's that attitude and that mindset of doing your job well, as you said, being humble, working forward. I had a discussion with a rigor last week on this project. I had never worked with them before. Project went really well and we were out to dinner and just kind of talking and about the fact that, you know, it it doesn't help you to walk around with your ETCP certification card in your hand and your chest all puffed up and saying, I'm a certified rigger and you should do exactly what I'm told when you walk into a new place. That being humble and walking in and saying, I'm here to work. What can we do to get this job done well? How can I make other people's jobs easier by doing a better job myself? And how do we succeed as a team gets you a lot further, a lot faster. And uh, a little little note for the people who are just breaking in the business, it also gets you more money. So that mindset's very important. Yeah, you know, uh, sort of demanding respect is a perfect recipe for immediate failure in my mind, um, especially when you go into uh, different houses around uh, touring houses and things like that, where they're used to people coming in to claim they know what they're doing. They need to stake their territory. You know, they need to prove that it's their house and you need to respect that. You have to walk in there and earn their respect. Or like you said, start at the bottom of the ladder again and, and work your way up if, if you don't. And that's a mistake, man. When I was young and I looked young when I was young too, man, I would make that mistake. I was coming in with a set that I had, you know, done all the techno draftings for the platforms, all that stuff. And I would go in and just tell everybody what to do. And I wasn't being mean, but at the same point, I wasn't necessarily um, taking stock of who the important people were around me and who needed my respect or needed my respect shown maybe um, more clearly. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and that gets corrected. Uh, that gets corrected pretty quickly in this industry with certain <laughs> certain unions in certain parts of the country. We'll, we'll fix that problem out of you right, right away. I, I say to... Uh some of the high school students I work with locally, I help a, a friend of mine who's a theater manager at a high school and I help do their set construction and teach the students. Well, at least I used to until, you know, we stopped doing shows. And I'll tell them that when I was running crews, yes, it's certainly better when your crew likes you, but my minimum requirement is that they respect me enough because I'm going to ask them to do some tough things like run four out through the mud in a, on a tent event or lift a heavy object and hold it over their head while we try to bolt it into place. And it's going to take a, a bit of effort, you know, whatever the case may be, if they respect you, it's going to be a lot easier and treating people in a can in a manner in which they aren't just instantly turned off and be like i don't respect you because of x y and z it makes your life more difficult and it's i think it's hard for people to articulate that sometimes that is the challenge of interpersonal relationships is learning how to you can either use the term manipulate but that has a negative connotation or to negotiate personalities to get to where you need to go. Um, and that's just, that's part of being human is how do you deal with personalities? And sometimes you get strong personalities and sometimes there's, you know, a desire to motivate people to work faster. Um, I read an interesting, and you can see how my thought process just goes all over the place. I read an interesting thought Oh, 
I heard it on another podcast. Surprise for the listeners, a wrestling podcast I was listening to. A former executive said, it is always a lot easier to slow down a fast horse than to try to make a slow horse faster because you're never going to make that slow horse faster, but you can teach how to slow down that fast horse. So that really just came up in the terms of when you're working with your crews or working with people and you see a person who's super energetic and going and going, it's like, all right, how do we slow them down and keep them going and getting the best performance out of that person versus, hey, this person's just, you know, not not working, not motivated, not interested and yeah how do you do that we we sort of say that in a different way or i say it a different way around here is you know i can teach everything but work ethic you know so if if i can find someone who's willing to work hard and that cares about the quality of what they do what they're doing is almost irrelevant you know i can teach them anything and they can learn anything um but that motivation or that sort of ability to run fast in the horse analogy that's that's the part that's hard right <laughs> so you first yeah. you got to pick that out of a person and then then the rest comes naturally and it's amazing you know this uh we've always been a company where everyone wears many hats and as we've grown the sort of number of hats you're expected to wear in a day shrinks you know as everyone becomes sort of a specialist but the pandemic kind of brought us back to our roots a little bit we were very fortunate we didn't lay off anybody we didn't furlough anybody we just sort of rethought our whole business and reacted very quickly. And I'm very proud that we haven't had to do any of those cutbacks yet and are staying busy. Um, but uh, in that part of the deal was basically, you know, I've said it a couple of times since I didn't know to say it at the beginning of this, but we've said, we've talked about it a couple of times since here is, you know, be prepared. You're going to be wearing more hats. You know what I mean? So the way we used to talk about it all the time in the old days when it was just a few people around here was, you know, the bookkeeper has to every once in a while, grab the forklift and unload a truck. You know, it's like, it's, it's that sort of willingness to sort of do what you need to. And in this sort of situational situation that we're in right now with this pandemic, and especially perhaps most of the listeners and the people that are in the entertainment industry, you know, you have, we, we, uh, we have to adapt. I, I think we'll get back someday to where we all were and it'll be wonderful. But in the meantime, adapting, I mean, we were already in a lot of different industries. So we've been very fortunate that we can kind of keep tapping those industries for work, but we're innovating and adapting. I mean, we've gone through, I think five brand new R and D projects since this pandemic started, we've designed totally new trust concepts including, you know, design engineering, prototyping many, many times over and over again, destructive testing many, many times over again to allow us to build a type of trust that we normally would have sent out to somebody else to allow 800, what worked out to be 800 man hours to be kept at the company during this pandemic versus sending it out to a different entity. And it's the willingness to sort of adapt and innovate, going back to the innovation thing, I, I don't see how else, you know, we can, we can sort of succeed and especially in this tumultuous situation that we're all in right now. Absolutely. Um, I had a thought it will come back to me probably as soon as we finish recording, but, but you know, you know, it's, uh, as a side note, uh, there was a very good odds that I would have been at Emerson. Uh, they, uh, I had a friends that were going up there, um, and uh, and I, my, both my brothers went to university in uh, in Boston, uh, not that one. They went to uh, what was it called, uh, North Northeastern, and uh, um, but they I didn't get the early admission. So then I decided, you know what, 
I heard Chicago's nice. I think I'll just go there. And I, I didn't make the decision in complete honesty. I didn't make the decision so much about the school. The school is relevant. Um, but it was really about, I heard it was a big city on a lake and then I just moved here. So otherwise we would have been, uh, we would have gone to school overlapping um, times. So say, when did you graduate college? Well, that uh, question uh, makes it difficult to answer. I finished uh, university in 97. Okay. If, I, if that subtlety is not lost. I I have a friend of mine who went to Emerson. He was a few years behind me. It started as a year and ended up being about two and a half, three years behind me. Um, there was a joke at Emerson, which is it's a four, five, six year school. You know, whatever you want to do is fine. Um, I, it, there are a lot of Emerson. And again, I'm just speaking about Emerson. There are a lot of famous Emerson alumnus, Jay Leno, who actually never graduated doesn't necessarily mean they didn't learn anything while they're there um so i it, my focus isn't so much on that it was just more of a, a a time period of of the overlap um one of the uh one of the things you brought up is changing with the environment and the pandemic certainly has changed things in a manner that none of us ever expected um before the pandemic, what is one of the areas in rigging and whether it's automation or counterweight or whatever that you think there there needed to be some more improvement in? And I'm going to take one topic off of the table just because it's come up a lot, which is training. So we've acknowledged the fact that training is probably the most important thing that we can do. So outside of training, what is another area that you think needs some improvement in our industry um i think the sort of the first thing you said actually not to grab onto just one of the examples you gave but the automation i think still has so much improvement uh, do you remember the days when you wanted to plug in a printer to your computer and it was like an eight hour ordeal uh, and drivers and this connection and no oh, that doesn't work and you know that's kind of where i feel like we are in automation right now we're at the printer plugging into my computer i waste eight hours um we're now for the most part, you just plug in your printer, or for that matter, you don't even plug it in. You just connect it to your Wi-Fi, and then it's all done. That That's where we need to be. I mean, we're obviously going to lag behind that development because that development has billions of dollars uh, behind it where we don't, but we're just not there yet. That I, I set up a, a, a Wi-Fi. I'm not a techie. Like, you know, I'm not a tech nerd for as much as we do automation and electronics, and I, I'm very good at troubleshooting and stuff like that. I still don't consider myself like a techie, right? Um, I still ask for help on my computer and pathetic things like that. Um, but I I look at the the incredible, I think it's just phenomenal uh, innovation that the, the IT world is going through, the tech world is going through with some of their consumer products. And tech... We talk about this as a, so in our automation department, uh, Jim and I have meetings twice a week, uh, Jim Savage, and we talk about uh, grandma friendly or expert friendly, right? So grandma friendly means it's like an iPhone. It doesn't have, it doesn't come with a manual. You just open it up, something lights up, you press the thing that lights up and it just sort of intuitively walks you through the use, right? And even the iPhone's getting, has ways to go to get better or the iPad or whatever you want to refer to. The tech friendly is something that you could do almost anything and you have to be a nerd and have to love to go into the DOS prompt or whatever, right? So those are sort of the variations. But when I look at a product like I set up at my house the other day, because my kid's doing remote schooling, of course. So uh, uh, just another Wi-Fi mesh network, because ours 
stunk, right? It was some old Apple boxes and they just they just weren't getting across the, the floors like we needed them to. Mm-hmm. And this thing was so grandma friendly. And I, I read the reviews online and people are criticizing it for how dumbed down it is because the tech people want to want to dig in deeper and make do more things. Um, but this is going to relate to another analogy you made. But it was just so dumb and easy to use. It was just pathetic. I mean, I couldn't have made a mistake. I, I followed the app instructions, plug this in, now wait, now hit next, now this. And it was just like, it was just, just phenomenal. And the same thing with like the Nest uh, temperature sensor system. It's like, it's probably going to be yellow wires, but it might be these wires. Check what ears look like. You know, they just dumb it down to this incredible usability. And when I say dumb it down, I'm not insulting it. It just, they make anybody be able to do it. And just like you, you know, you can slow down a fast horse and it's harder to speed up a slow one. A tech geek can use a grandma-friendly system, but a grandma can't use a tech-friendly system. And so our goal with our automation is, and once again, this is not an insult, this is just an easy way to talk about it in slang, is to dumb down the system that anybody can use it. The simpler the system is, by nature, the safer it will be to operate. Every time you add a level of complication, and I don't mean like you add a safety feature, I mean when you make it slightly more difficult to use the control, you by nature are making it more difficult. It's not as intuitive. When it's not as intuitive, it's not going to be in a panic or a situation. You're not going to react as easily to the situation. So our goal, and it's brutally difficult because the expectation of grandma friendly with an iPad or something like that is so high. Um, But that's always been our goal is like, how do we make it so easy that you don't think about all these amazing things that this control system can do? Instead, it just does it. And we fight with our our experts, our tech geek people, because they want more. They want to see all the numbers move on the screen. It's like, but you don't need to. So we try to leave options to make that available, but we keep trying to distill it down to the base functionality and not make a screen that you walk up to to control, you know, one curtain intimidating. It just shouldn't be. A high school student or teacher, I'm not saying they should be able to go up and move anything that could kill somebody, but if they're going to move something anyway, it should be easy to do because that's going to increase the chance that it's safe, right? So you don't make a car hard to accelerate because therefore people that aren't supposed to use the car won't drive it. No, you just make a key. But everything else you make as easy as possible, right? It's not tap the gas pedal three times and the brake once to put it into drive. No, you put it into drive, you hit the pedal, that's it. And if you want to protect people that aren't supposed to use it, you just use a key. And I come across all these old automation systems and the logic really was it shouldn't be easy because then anybody will use it that's not supposed to. It's like, it just drives me crazy because even, you know, I've used almost every automation system out there at some point or another. And when you leave an automation system and come back to it a year later, the harder it is, the more you're gonna forget, the harder it is to start using again. There's no reason those shouldn't be easy. So the long-winded answer, but that's where we need the most growth is really to simplify our control. And it's going to be a fight because we're so used to that complex control. And, you know, we're, we're used to looking at sound boards that have a thousand knobs. We're used to looking at lighting consoles that can do absolutely everything, but there's so many clients out there that don't need that. The example I always give is, you know, if the goal is to get from here to three blocks away, you could give someone a scooter, you give someone a bicycle, you give someone a tank, you know, they don't need a tank. You know, the, Maybe they want to tank. Maybe that makes sense. But there's so many people that don't need everything and people fall into the trap. Well, I want everything. I want all the possibilities, everything. It's like, wait, 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 let's slow down 
and let's make sure you get exactly what you need and it's done in a way that you can safely operate it. Um, a consultant I used to work for many, many years ago used to say to, he, we did a lot of uh, consulting for churches and this was during the time where Willow Creek was really blowing up and we were going around all over the country and everyone said they wanted to be like Willow Creek. And uh, he would say to the customers, like, I can design you and you can have built a 747 airplane, but without a ladder, you won't be able to get in it. You know, it's like, so his point was like, we can do anything, but let's make sure you have the capacity to use and do that thing that you mm. that you're asking for. Yeah. I, I used to joke, you mentioned the, uh, the printer analogy. I, I've been a Mac guy, despite the fact that I use a PC more now, but I've been a Mac guy forever. I'm just a graphical person and that's how I, you know, enjoyed. And my computer friends would give me crap and be like, oh, Macs are for stupid people. And I'd look at them and say, okay, I plug my printer in. It doesn't work. I'd rather have my printer say, hey, stupid, you need to plug it in or you need to change the ink than it's Syntex Airline 504. Great. What does that mean? Nothing to me. All it's doing is not being efficient and not allowing me to print the page that I want to print. So I totally understand that aspect of, uh, and I love the term grandma friendly versus tech friendly. Um, yeah, and this I'm going to is... steal that. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I mean, and not to go into the topic, you didn't really want a topic, but I will go into it a little bit, the training thing, you know, it's like the whole idea is like demystify all this. I was so annoyed starting out in the industry, how riggers acted like they had this knowledge and they were above everyone else. It's like, wait a minute, guys, this is all math. This is all high school math. Like it, none of it's magic. And if you treat it like magic and treat it like some people are the chosen few and some people aren't. You, I think you just create risk. You create really unnecessary risk. And I tell people in my uh, uh, former flying training all the time, you know, it's like anybody can question the safety of something. Like if you go up to me when I install something and I teach you how to use it and you're like, but how come you did it like this? I'm never going to be insulted or <laughs> I will correct myself if I feel insulted anyway. And I'll say, oh, well, that's a good question. And I'll talk about it because in that discussing it, there's a possibility that we might learn something that isn't right isn't ideal could be better and that learning and i talked about it when you were asking me who sort of influenced me that learning from sort of everyone is is really great and it happens to this day i mean i'm amazed that i go into a construction site middle of nowhere we're doing a very simple counterweight job or something like that and there's somebody there that's you know works at a hardware store and then also does construction on the side and they teach me something really creative really interesting about a solution and those are gold to me. That's, that's just incredible. But if you close your mind to that and you just say, I'm the expert, you're not riggers are amazing. And everyone else is terrible. <laughs> you just, you obliterate all those opportunities for education. I, I was very adamant about taking away that arrogant rigor attitude. I, I, it happens here. People feel arrogant and confident, which is good to feel confident, bad to feel arrogant. And we constantly talk about correcting that. It's like, you can't go with this attitude of you're the best. Um, it, it just, it just takes away your opportunity to learn and, and it will increase the chance you make a mistake. Cause of course, anybody questioning you is obviously wrong as opposed to possibly finding a, a mistake. Absolutely. Um, I have very vivid memories of asking a rigor in the Boston area when I was getting into the corporate industrial side of lighting, ask them a question about, 
why he selected putting the point where he did or something. And he pretty much said, piss off. And now, 25 years later, I think about it and I say, I bet you he said piss off, not because he thought I was going to take his job or because that's just what he did. I bet you he didn't actually have an answer. Yeah. And, and that's where I learned that more often than not, people who are resistant to educate others, it's because they actually don't know how to. They Either they don't know how to articulate what they're doing or they don't know what they're doing. They're just regurgitating what they were taught to do without an understanding of what they are doing. Um, I also learned not to take no as an answer, you know, to be like, okay, well, I'll go find out the information somewhere else. Um, yeah. And it, that basic level of knowledge that you asking that question, you know, we can all understand how if you were really young and he was older then that would be insulting, blah, blah, blah. But it's like that basic loop of exchange of information and not to get, once again, not to get too like hippy dippy here, but it creates this loop of knowledge and improvement amongst everybody. It's fantastic. I mean, I just, I love that stuff, but you know, and, and taking someone who's brand new and spending 20 minutes explaining something, you know, you, you hear about it from teachers all the time. You know, you don't really understand a subject until you teach it, you know, the having to go through and explain something and prove to them and to yourself that it makes sense is a really great way to solidify your knowledge. Well, so brings up two things first thing um that i'm already starting to forget no i can't yep nope forgot it second time in an episode this getting old thing stinks <laughs> um a couple of weeks ago i was teaching a class and we're doing bridal math and if you are asked the question where does uh, a beam load distribution equation come from it's very easy to explain that, you know, it's very simple to say, Hey, it's just a percentage. It's a percentage of the load goes to one direction percentage of the load go goes to the other direction. Ask that same question of where does, where do the equations come from for bridal math? And you go, well, it's a, Hmm. And you kind of think about it. The reality is it is actually the same thing. It is a percentage of the load. But there's a difference, which is you've now taken that load. And this is the next video I'm going to do. I just have to figure out how I want to animate it. Uh, you're increasing the load on certain components because they're not hanging directly underneath the suspension point. You've added, added more force into the system by moving it off of that suspension point. And you do that for each half of the bridle. When you understand that, now the equations don't become so intimidating. And that's kind of the point, which is if you understand the process and where it comes from, you have a firmer or uh, yeah, a firmer grasp on the topic. It becomes easier and yeah, you have to get easier. to the logic, right? It becomes yeah. and you make it a more useful tool. You become better at what you're doing and it opens up more opportunities of finding solutions to the challenges. Yeah, one of the terms I use a lot is mechanical disadvantage, right? You know, as you get off that sort of directly plumb, you just keep getting this disadvantage, like when you're holding a bucket away from your body. It just gets, you're, you're adding in all these forces because of that disadvantage. Um, and I, I think that is really relevant because when you break down the logic, when you sort of finally get someone to break through that sort of mental barrier they have of the intimidation of that math, it's 
it's all so straightforward. It's just some math, which may not be fun, may not be easy for everyone, but it's certainly not um, tricky. It's just math, you know? No, it, 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 there's a very clear line of demarcation, which is two-point bridles math is actually really simple. It is, from an engineering standpoint, not that complicated. Three-leg bridles, that's where you get into rocket science. That's <laughs> exponentially more complicated. Um, and if if you haven't done so, you can find it. If you've done one of my trainings, it's in there. Uh, the equation is in uh, Harry Donovan's book. Delbert Hall has it in his book. The equation for three-legged bridles is like a 15-step process of figuring out a series of variables. And if you ever, if you do it once by hand, I would give you credit. I'll give you a hundred dollars because it's just that silly, but it has to, it, that's why it gets so complicated. Um, and that's the question people are like, well, where's the three leg bridle equation come from? And in my answer to that is the equation gods. That's it. That's the best you're ever going to get from me. I don't think I'll ever wrap my head around it. I mean, I will. I understand the principle of it, but how you get the individual components of that equation. Yeah. That's yep. not going to happen anytime soon for me. Hmm. What's one of your favorite tools right now? And that could be a hand tool. It could be a new piece of machinery you have in the shop. Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, I, I am not a techie, but I do love tool, tool toys. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, you know, the one, one of the ones that's been my favorite for a long time, you just have to give a shout out for how well it works is the Nikopress electric swager. Um, I mean, just phenomenal. We break them. So admittedly they don't last forever. Uh, we break them often, um, because we use them so much. Uh, but we love them. We bought one. I don't remember how many years ago they came out and then we immediately bought two more. I mean, we just use them like crazy. The sort of upside down over your head and around the back of your neck swaging is feasible. I have these two really weird muscles and sort of sticking out of the side of my elbow from hand swaging um, and hand cutting for over the years. And uh, they're, they're dwindling, but I, I love that tool um, for everything. But the other tool I love in my shop right now that we're just having a blast playing with is a, uh, a Mata 50 ton press break. Um, you know, it just basically folds steel. That's the easy way to describe it. Um, but uh, it just works so well with our, we have a five axis uh, water jet. Um, and uh, that combined with the, the CNC um, press break is just, just phenomenal fun. And it's, it's, the reason it's so much fun is the, the technology has been around forever. It's nothing very interesting. It's just that your opportunity to, to torture your brain into having to solve something that doesn't make sense for the first 20 minutes you think about it and every fold and how that fold will affect the next fold or how that fold will then hit something else in the machine. Uh, it's just... It's just an absolute blast, but that's that's my full nerdness coming out right there. Nice. Would it, so you mentioned the swaging tool and cutting. Have you used the cutting heads on the uh, tool? They have, been, our, they have been banned from our company because they have broken so many jaws, we no longer use them at all. So I discovered recently, I just bought, uh, you know, I've joked when I left, left the big corporation, there were three tools that I was really sad to leave behind. The swaging tool, the battery operated swaging tool was one, the porta band was another, and the mag drill was the third. Oh, mag drills are great. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I'm, I'm slowly acquiring the, as I get projects that require them slowly acquiring those tools back. I don't have the Porter band of uh, the, uh, mag drill yet. Um, but I have my eye on one, which actually has a, uh, it's the, the cordless Makita and it uses okay. a rare, a rare earth magnet and it's dialable. That's huh. not a word, but it's variable. Basically you can turn a knob and it moves the magnet away from the surface you're mounting to so on the lowest setting it barely holds it in place so you can still position it and then you crank it up and it locks it into place and the reason it uses a natural magnet is that if your battery dies you don't want the thing falling off the surface right interesting but they're not cheap they're like 35 uh 2500 bucks um yeah we but, use a brand i don't know what it's called it's orange i think but they're corded they're all corded that we typically yeah. use the most but, yeah. the uh the swaging tool is made by a company called Husky and not the company that makes tools for Home Depot spelled differently. But it turns out that they're actually the OEM manufacturer for both Nycopress and Locolock. And they make cutting heads. And I've debated doing it, but I've heard a lot of people say that they just, they break all the time. The original design, they were cracking the jaws quite often and they redesigned them. Um, the, the the tool that I'm wanting to get is a fuse cutter for wire rope. Oh, sure. Yeah. When you cut your wire rope, it fuses the ends together. But I've only found one that goes up to like three thirty seconds wire rope. Yeah, which is pretty useless. Yeah, for... I know that that uh, that big company you talked about. I think they have one um, with an automated cutter. Uh, but uh, we're we're about to. It's, it was supposed to be here already. I think it's stuck in the. Uh, the house, the warehouse in Chicago, um, but we're supposed to get a auto measure and cut uh, wire rope cutter because we have a job coming up where we have twelve thousand um, wire uh, rope assemblies to make. So wow. that'll be a new fun toy. It'll you know measure and cut, measure and cut, and just spits them out all day long. So that, that'll be hopefully a new toy. Nice. We put some video of that on your YouTube site so we can uh, see it in yeah. action. Yeah. Um. What's on your rigger or rigging bucket list? Um, I, I just want more challenges. I always get worried that the next year won't bring enough weird challenges. Um, you know, so the I've been very fortunate that, you know, enough people have asked me to do some weird things. Um, and, you know, our weird thing is a niche, right? Like we're not doing weird things with giant chain oyster arenas. That's just not what we do. We're, uh, we're doing weird things in permanent installs, weird things in hospital settings and, you know, weird things in different things like that. So my bucket list is just to do the next biggest, stupidest, weirdest thing ever. I mean, there's a project I we're working on a proposal for right now that was, uh, I'm going to forget, I think it was 450 tons of equipment we'd be suspending. I can't remember the exact math. So, you know, that'd be fun just for the sake of having done it. Um, but just challenging, just another challenge. Like, please, if anybody's listening, like you've got something that everyone else said, no, that's hard to do, man, bring it. We'd love to to do it. It's just what keeps us all uh, ticking away here with new, new ideas. Do you have any, and you can hide the names for uh, protection. Do you have any uh, good rigging horror stories, a situation that you walked into an inspection or other that you just walked in and said, wow, that's, that's bad. Or what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Oh God, that's almost impossible to answer. We used to do like, I would say it was probably 
late 90s, early 2000s, we used to have a boo-boo page on our website where we'd show all the photographs of these horrible things we found in inspections, but we cut that out a long time ago just to make sure nobody got upset. Um, and then I think for a few years, I think Clancy was doing it, some version of that. Um, it, it, it's, I, I don't even know how to find the best one. There's, they're spectacular what people do wrong. I think, but I think what I'd rather say is what I've done wrong. I mean, um, in college, I, uh, didn't understand swaging and, um, no one really taught me the right way to do it or to understand it. So I used a stop sleeve, um, two parts of a stop sleeve in a steel flat. It was very skinny, not very big steel flat, um, maybe 10 feet long, maybe one foot tall with a little Luan cover or something. I don't remember what it was, but in order to keep it looking nice, I drilled holes through the top one inch box tube and then put a washer and a stop sleeve in there to terminate it. Um, during rehearsal, uh, one end of the thing came free. The stop swage just slipped off the end. The other end luckily didn't, nobody got hurt luckily. But it was a really eye-opening experience because I used something that the university provided for me that, that was available to, for me to use. And I used it as what I understood to be correct, but I hadn't been trained. I hadn't understood it. And the people around me didn't understand it. Um, I was glad that they gave me the opportunity to fail. And thankfully that failure didn't mean anybody got hurt. Um, but you know, that's one of those things that just teaches you the, the rest of your career something about that. You know, it's the, it's, it's what the, the GCs call the near misses, right? The reason they make you, if people don't know, in a typical really big construction site with a very serious GC, general contractor, um, you'll have to report any near misses, which means something that almost was an incident, but nobody it didn't really become an incident. So it was close, but nobody really got hurt. Nothing really bad happened. And the reason they do that is because those are huge educational opportunities. You know, you don't want to wait till someone dies or someone falls in order to then change the way you're doing it. You want to react to someone almost falling, right? And then change what caused that to almost happen. Um, and that was that was one of many in my career that mistakes I made. And I'm I'm very proud to have learned from the mistakes I made. I think it's a flaw that we don't talk more openly about some of the challenges and mistakes we've come across. You know, those are huge opportunities for learning, um, even though they're painful sometimes to go through and think about again. Uh, we had a situation where we were lowering an object and uh, the person lowering it was up in the ceiling. I was down at the ground and they were on radio and I said, okay, keep lowering, keep lowering. And we basically lowered this object right out of, I don't know if you know what a tier four or a grip hoist is. It's basically kind of like a come along where the wire passes straight through it. Well, the person just lowered it right right through the end and just the thing dropped like six feet. It wasn't that badly damaged. Nobody got hurt. <laughs> the cable, 100 feet of the cable came down afterwards and, you know, just fell on the ground, which was a little intimidating. But once again, nobody got hurt. But it, it was one of those things. It was like, why did that happen? Well, the person who was operating didn't pay attention to the fact that their cable was running out. We didn't put something as simple as a stop at the end of it to prevent it from accidentally get fed out. And I, as the person directing it on the ground, didn't say anything to make sure that person upstairs watched for it. It didn't occur to me to remind them to look for that thing. Another incident happened in a place in Chicago where I was rigging um, a performer flying a silk act. It was this Russian guy I used to rig all the time in the really early days of silks being a thing for business events and stuff. And uh, we had to rig up from the floor through the drop ceiling up to the steel across the room uh, to another piece of steel and then down through the drop ceiling again. So we left some drop ceiling tiles out. And this guy liked to rig manually. So we always rigged a pulley on the ground for him that was weighted down. And then he liked to have people run back and forth sideways to give him sort of an immediate feel, right? His, his lead would run and everybody else would follow him. It was a great rig. Uh, 
the the tra tra traverse of the line was like 100 some feet. So it was it had too much bounce in it. So we added another um, idler pulley, right? Like an intermediate pulley that helped reduce the sag. So I had said to the riggers, all of which, you know, had 20 plus years of experience on me at the time above me, I said, can you go up and mouse all the shackles? And this is a habit we've been into forever, just mousing shackles, and this just reiterated it. You know, and the idea is you take the pin and prevent it from being able to spin out. Now, people will argue whether this is relevant or not, but for our purposes, for what we were doing, this was very relevant. So we had, it was just split chips, right? It was like a, I don't know, CMC brand split chips or something like that, just little pulleys. So they had done that. So they, they came down um, and said, okay, they're all mouse. I said, great. So we all went to lunch came back and we started rehearsal. Well, I'd already made my mistake and I didn't realize it at the time. You know, I, I leaned on these people where I specifically asked them to go back upstairs to mouse something. I trusted them when they said they did it, they did it. Well, what they did was they moused the first one and, and the last one in the system and didn't mouse the intermediate because they felt, eh, it's not that important. It's not really holding anything up in the air. So I didn't know this at the time and we're a few hours into rehearsal and through the drop ceiling comes a shiv and a pin, shackle pin, like a 5H shackle pin, and hits the floor. Luckily, once again, nobody gets hurt. But it was a thing where it was like the simplest of mistake I made, you know, could have been something really catastrophic. It was very fortunate it wasn't, but I should have checked that stuff myself, right? It wasn't that these guys were intentionally misleading me. I don't think they were, but I may have may not made myself clear, but whether I did or did not, I should have gone up there and known for myself that this was redundant. And it's just the idea of, you know, four eyes are better than two. A second person, a third person looking at something is constantly reiterating the fact that it's done correctly. So for me, I don't remember what your exact question was when we started this, but those things are just so incredibly valuable to learn and to teach and to tell people again and again. Even telling it now, I'm always, you feel a slight hesitation talking about it because you're afraid someone's going to like criticize you. Well, obviously, he's a terrible rigger. Oh, you know, people love to jump on this negativity bandwagon. But I've said it and it's got to be over four or 500 trainings. I'm sure the story has come up and I say it again and again, this is the mistake I made. This is the mistake I made. Don't make, you don't have to make this mistake. I already made it for us. I'm going to educate us all. And then we'll all experience this mistake and learn from it together. And I'm sure there's, if I kept thinking about it, I'm sure there's, you know, two dozen more that I could go through these near misses and mistakes I've made um, to, to, to educate people. And that's really valuable. And I don't think people talk about it because they're afraid their reputation is going to somehow be hurt or they're embarrassed to talk about it or they want to don't want to ever admit they're anything but the most perfect rigor and i think that's just a, a load of bull right whenever someone is sort of perfect or the best at something or they say like i know what i'm doing don't worry about it right away those are like flags and and rocket ships go off in my mind worrying about whether that person's going to be able to do this safely so in reverse order when I start my trainings, I ask people to raise their hand and tell me who here has had a rigging failure. And a few people will raise their hand and then I'll proceed to call the rest of the people in the class liars. And say, <laughs> That's good. Have you ever, have you ever dropped your sea wrench or the pin <laughs> of the shackle? out of your hand while you're standing on the ground and people are like, Oh yeah. And I'm like, well, that's a rigging failure. Yeah. If you're going to define a rigging failure as gravity doing something you did not to an object, you did not intend it to do. That's a rigging failure. Um, and then I'll tell people, Hey, I was, I wasn't on site for this part of it, but I had an led wall fall over during loadout. I had designed the support system. The crew was taking it out. 
didn't uh, recognize one of the steps that I had explained, whether it was my fault in explaining the process or or whatever, doesn't matter. But that was my project. And a thankfully, it was a Martin LC4120. So it's kind of the, the, the clear tubes that are spaced about four inches apart. So it wasn't very ha- heavy, nor was it very big. But it fell over and knocked one person off a six-foot ladder who took a bump through a table like pro wrestling. Um, everyone was okay, but yeah, it happens. I've dropped crossbars on lighting trees before, you know, it's going to happen. It's how you rebound and how you address the situation, uh, and learn from it. As you mentioned, that was good. Yeah, and going back absolutely. to your, uh, your split shiv pin through the, the ceiling. I love failure analysis. I love going through that process and so as you were explaining what was happening, I could kind of see where it was going. And it's like, yep. And so when you do the failure analysis, that idler is not under constant load, which means yep. it's the one that's going to move the most. Back and, and that forth. Exactly. And that yeah. movement is what worked it. And that's yeah. counterintuitive. When you're setting up, you'd be like, well, the two end ones are the ones under the most load. That's the most important. And, well, and somebody would somebody that's smart might be like, well, why was the... Why was it not bell down? But I think you know the answer, Ethan. Why was it not bell down? Because it wouldn't fit through the split shift? Ah, uh, no, it's close. Uh, because I had I had a span set wrapped around an I beam, which yep. means I had the span set coming out down at two angles, right? So I didn't want to put that opposing angle in the bolt, the pin side. So I put it in the bell side, which means the pin is on the the shift. Yep. Yep. So. And uh, it. Yeah, you go through that and, and it becomes hopefully obvious afterwards. And so you learn that little trick of, hey, they, people ask me the question, do I use wire ties, zip ties, whatever you want to call them, versus bailing wire or something more robust for do mousing? And I'll say, I'll use a pipe cleaner if you have them. I'll use zip ties. Anything that will stop that pin from spinning will work. And the criticism of zip ties is over time, they'll fail. And my response to that is, well, you should catch that in your annual inspection, shouldn't you? Yeah, I think that's, I really appreciate that attitude because I I do the same thing when we talk about mousing shackles and we tell people the right way and make it look pretty and the mousing turnbuckles. And I always say a very similar thing, which is like, but in the end, at least get it done. If you have to do the worst, ugliest, gigantic mess of a mousing thing to achieve the goal of not letting it spin, which is the goal. The goal is not to make it look pretty. The goal is to make it not spin. Then so what? Then that's good enough for what you needed to do, right? You know, the goal has to be met in any way. Yep. Absolutely. All right. I think I'm going to ask you the hardest one. This has stumped a few people. What is your best or worst rigor joke? I don't have rigor jokes only because that kind of stuff's a little cheesy, but I would like to tell you uh, a joke that my six-year-old son made up uh, the other day. We, we made it up in two stages on a walk back from the park uh, this weekend, and I think it was pretty good. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the East Coast and was born in Vermont and stuff like that. So the term wicked, you know, is used around our house. Um, so if anybody who doesn't know that New England, you know, wicked is like cool, right? You just say it in kind of a version of that. Um, so he came up with the, the joke. He said there through two stages of developing it. But the end joke is, um, hey, Papa, a witch did a backflip. It was wicked, which I just thought 
was a fantastic joke. That that is pretty damn good. <laughs> the, <laughs> On so many different levels. The first yep. it was at first it was a monster did a backflip, and I was like, well, how about something that is more wicked? And so he came up with a witch, and I thought it was just like, wow, you just wrapped up a real joke here at six years old. I think that's pretty good. And it's like relevant to a show. Just <laughs> wicked and a witch and and all that stuff. The only thing that would have made that better has if you had looked at him and said, Pissa. <laughs> that that is a way inside New England term, folks. Wicked Pissa, dude. Wicked Pissa, yeah. You know, he's really into knots right now, and it drives my wife crazy because he loves to tie people up right now. But he's really he's really stuck on um he just does like a half itch, right? Or a first knot. And he does it over and over and over again. Like, like most good people, <laughs> like that's when you're stuck, you just do that. Right. Um, and, uh, but he's figured out a way to always do uh, like a slip knot that'll always get tighter. It's sort of like, I don't know, sort of noose ish, but with a collection of half itches and he does it consistently over and over again. And it is pretty impressive, but he still doesn't know how to tie his shoes and he still doesn't know how to tie a bowl in or a clove itch. Um, and I, and I question myself all the time. It's like, should this be a big deal? But then I kind of stick to the old phrase, you know, a shoemaker's kids never have any shoes. Like he doesn't need to learn rigging. He's fine. He'll just do something else in life better than a yeah. uh, choice of careers. That's awesome. I think this has been great. I yeah, think I've learned some new stuff and, and some very entertaining stories and fun projects. Um, I want to thank you for spending some time talking about, uh, you know, the industry and, and different stuff. I appreciate it. And after last week's crammed episode, uh, this has certainly uh, raised the bar back up again. So I want to thank you for uh, contributing. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'm glad to do it. Uh, Ed was bugging me about it. He said it was fun. He said you're a great guy. So I'm glad we finally got to meet. It's funny how close we were to being at the same school at the same time. Um, but then to still come together uh, years later is great. And uh, we'd love to have you guest on some of our training. Um, I know Ed's been trying to work in more guests here and there. It's for me, it goes back to what we've said now half a dozen different ways in this conversation. Um, you know, all those different perspectives, everyone's bringing a little bit of different extra knowledge to the conversation. So when we do some of these premium classes and we add, you know, Ed and, maybe Elmer and you or something like that, you get all these extra people throwing in their two cents. You get this really well-rounded thing. Um, and one of the things I'd, I'd like to say to any listeners that are thinking about taking training, whether for me or Ethan or Eric or anybody um, is for me, and this is my personal preference. And I think the trainers here preference. And I assume Ethan, I get the feeling you'd feel the same way is bring thoughts and questions to the table. Um, some of the best educational classes uh, and training I've done and this is anywhere from a cruise ship to a theater to a hospital setting is, is the ones where people bring challenges uh, to the table um, because you have opportunity to apply theory with real world settings. And it just builds this incredible depth of understanding. Yes. And the greatest way for any person to learn and, and people talk about, is it visual or is it by doing all of those things rely on one thing, which is a person working through the solution themselves. So when you ask a question, I'm very fond of people saying, what do you think about this? And I'll say, all right, well, do you have an example of seeing that? And I'll say, well, we were working on this project in XYZ. And I'll say, well, I'll ask questions. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? 
forced them to think about why they were making the decisions, or as uh, Chris Schmidt said, defending their work. And that forces them to think through the process. And then, then when they get the answer themselves, they know the answer. They're not yeah. remembering the answer. They know it. And that is, that's the goal. 100%. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Sweet. That's great. Well, Thanks, Ethan. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I have to apologize to everyone. I'm sorry that this is going to drop on a Wednesday. Labor Day weekend snuck up on me and I didn't have my act together. So it's a day late. But, you know, hopefully it's not a dollar short. And that is about it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And this is going to be a great pun because we were talking about a drop, dropped shackle pin. But until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger. As big as can be.